Well, good morning, everyone. I wonder this morning, uh, in fact, you know what, before we go any further, I know Jeff's already prayed for me, but I need more of it this morning. Um, so let's spend some time just quickly in prayer. Heavenly Father, we give thanks this morning as we come before your word. Lord, to know that you have given us, Lord, so much hope and a life in you. Lord, uh, a way to find out of the darkness and into the light. And yet we would be totally ignorant of it, were it not for your word, both in your son and in the work of your spirit through men putting this together, Lord, our Bibles. We give thanks this morning as we get to sit under it. And Lord, to see a little more of, Lord, how we stand before you, in you, with you, and to rejoice in that. But Father, I also acknowledge that this morning is a hard word for us to receive. For some of us, it comes at great cost to hear it. I do pray uh, for my own courage, but for my own gentleness as well, that we would hear you speak, but Lord, that you would uh, shepherd us, Lord, into your light. Help us to be able to see you as our great hope, not anything else that the world has told us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning, I want to ask you a question. What is the most serious injury that you've ever received? Can you think of one? A few nods. Uh, Broken bones, cuts, abrasions. My uncle Cliff, he is known in our family for having quite severe injuries on his bike. It happens to him often, uh, with months of recovery in between, only to happen again. Most recently, he was riding in a group of cyclists along the bottom of a cliff. And out of nowhere, a kangaroo jumped off of the cliff and landed directly on top of him. (laughs) Out of a pack of cyclists, a kangaroo jumps off a cliff to land on a cliff. (laughs) Very unfortunate. But picturing those most serious injuries that we might have, I wonder what you did to try and recover from them. Would one of these have helped? A Band-Aid? Maybe, maybe not. Perhaps maybe just a bit of spit and dirt, like all little boys do. Just rub some dirt into it. What would you think of the doctor that came across your serious injuries and just put one of these on it? I don't think you'd think much of him, that he had maybe misdiagnosed the severity of your injury. There's a band called the West Coast Revival and it's connected to Sovereign Grace Music and they have a song called Simple Fix. The chorus reads, Don't give me just temporary... I'm looking for something more. I'm one foot into my grave and now I need, no, I need permanent, significant, 
like a finger on a gunshot wound, you know that it's not enough. You're never going to live. Like a finger on a gunshot wound, you know it's not enough. You're never going to live. You need more than a simple fix, more than a Band-Aid. Now, the song is singing about the brokenness that comes in to our lives as a consequence of sin. We need more than a simple fix. Now, why talk about this this morning? Because the Sermon on the Mount is quite painful to listen to, isn't it? As Jesus educates his disciples and us about the fullness of the law, it can be excruciating. He's ripping off the band-aids that we have so diligently put on to our wounds. He's pulling off the fingers that we've held over gunshots. And last week we saw that he, as he ripped away the disciples' ability to keep the law of murder and lust. They had looked at the wound caused by breaking these laws and they had misdiagnosed them, believing them to only be minor wounds, small cuts, small abrasions, something that easily solved with a simple fix, with an easy law to be able to kept. These were very achievable Band-Aid solutions, as far as they knew them. Then Jesus teaches them about the true and the full law. He shows them that it's not just a matter of not physically murdering or physically sleeping with somebody else outside of marriage, but a matter of the heart, of not hating, of not mocking, of not lusting in the heart. And suddenly, all of a sudden, they can see that their wounds are more than just minor abrasions. Suddenly they see themselves in the light of the word and they're missing limbs. And they've got broken bones sticking out at odd angles. And they have open sores that are still bleeding. And they've tried to patch it up with a band-aid. Injuries that no amount of effort on their own to obey could ever mend or ever even contribute to the healing of. Or well, Jesus reveals to them the truth of their battered and broken situation. I'm one foot into my grave and now I know I need permanent, significant, more than a simple fix as they have been more than what they've been taught so far. They needed true healing, a new life. What they needed was the kingdom of heaven in their lives. Jesus says to his disciples in the Gospel of Mark, after speaking to the rich man, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And they were greatly astounded and said to one another, who then can be saved? Jesus makes clear at this stage in the Sermon on the Mount that it's not just hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. It's hard, impossible for everyone to enter the kingdom of heaven. Yet that is what we need. 
to be healed from the wounds of sin. That is what we need. What we need is righteousness. That of which exceeds the Pharisees and the scribes. The disciples said it well. Who then can be saved? And do, we, do you know what Jesus says to them in response? For mortals it is impossible. You feel the weight of that. For mortals it's impossible to enter the kingdom of God. But not for God, he says. For God all things are possible. Jesus said to himself, said of himself concerning the law, I didn't come to destroy the law and the prophets. I didn't come to destroy, but to fulfill the law. Jesus and Jesus alone is unbloodied, unbroken and perfect without sin. He satisfies the requirements of the law, not the Pharisees version of the law, which anyone could do, but God's full law. The holy law. And the only wounds that he bears are the scars of victory. The scars that he has gained, not through his sin, but because of his love for his sin-torn disciples. The scars on his hands, his feet and his side. The scars he gained for giving his life for ours, his righteousness, for our own. When hearing Jesus speak on the law, we may feel beaten and bloodied and broken for a time, as though he is stripping away any hope or comfort that we have. And in truth, that is exactly what he is doing. Hope and comfort in false things, in band-aids. But he does so that we might have more than a simple fix. Something permanent, significant. He does it because he is a good shepherd and prefers for his flock a little pain now for a complete and total healing so that they may live in him rather than by themselves dying. This is why Jesus speaks on the law after the Beatitudes. It's after stating what life looks like in him that he shepherds his flock away from the lies that we have bought into and into his own heart. Last week we were taught something about Jesus shepherding concerning the laws of murder and adultery. And I hope and pray that the knowledge that we gained last week was, well, it was more than knowledge. More than an interesting observation for us, but something that may have been genuinely painful, but genuinely healing as well because of that. That you would have felt the good shepherd guiding you. Well, this week we're going to speak on two more, the laws of marriage and faithfulness. Now, I admit that as I approach this week's sermon, I am a little weak at the knees. For many people, this topic of marriage and divorce is one of the more sensitive wounds that is born. 
many, if not most, people here will have experienced something of it. Either personally, through marriage, divorce or remarriage, or someone close to us. But we all have a background or an understanding of the topic already. Something that's been given to us by a family or a culture. And we all approach this topic this morning with coloured lenses already on. All of us. No matter, no exception. Just as the disciples did when they were speaking to Jesus. But one, and the hope that I have this morning, is that we would hear not the voices of our past experiences, not the voices of even my own personal opinion, but that we would hear Jesus this morning, his shepherding of us towards his kingdom. As he sits with us, as he did with his disciples, he shepherds us. There may be some pain involved even this morning, some wounds exposed again, but I pray and have been praying that the only pain we would feel this morning is what comes from what he is doing in our lives and not from any unnecessary and potentially hurtful words from myself. Let us first consider then the image of marriage that we have in Genesis. For the first time in the creation story, God looks at Adam and he sees him alone and says there's something not good, something that's incomplete here. For Adam, there was not found a helper comparable to him. So in a method that is unique in creation, Eve is made, not out of the dust of the earth, but out of the side of Adam. Michael Reeves wrote, The account of Genesis 2 certainly makes you sit up and wonder. For there, in a world before all death and injury, Adam is wounded. He falls into a deep, strange, death-like sleep, and from his side the Lord takes a rib and builds it into a woman. She comes from him, and they become one, husband and wife. Now, similarly, Matthew Henry writes, In this, as in many things, Adam was a figure of him that was to come. From out of the side of Christ, the second Adam, his spouse, the church, was formed. When he slept the sleep, the deep sleep of death on the cross, in order to which his side was opened, and there came out blood and water, blood to purchase his church and water to purify it to himself. There's something of a cosmic pattern in marriage. The creation and subsequent union of Adam and Eve reflects the creation and the union of Christ and the church. Not simply a time where their interests align and they tread a path together, but more than that, where they become one. What does Adam say as he wakes up to see Eve? Susanna read it well. This is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. 
She shall be called woman because she is taken out of man. Even though Eve has been removed from him physically, he sees her as his very being, his bones and his flesh. And scripture continues to confirm it. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Our marriages are a reflection of Jesus and the church. So then, if we were to have a poor view, a light view, or a fragile view of our own union in marriage, that gives a poor reflection of our understanding of Christ and the church. It cannot be a light thing. Now, surprisingly, this is not a word against divorce. Although it is not a part of the ideal plan of God for his people, he recognises that sometimes horrific things occur in marriages due to sin and the hardness of men's hearts. With evil in the world, it can create such situations within the one flesh that has been created that it is better, though immensely sad, that divorce occur. We find in Deuteronomy that God gives Moses a concession for divorce, an allowance for it. But as so often happens when humanity is given an inch, they take a mile. In Matthew 19, we find Jesus discussing divorce with the Pharisees. They ask him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason? You see, they were at the time debating two approaches to divorce from two different rabbinic schools, that of Shammai and Hillel. Now, Shammai believed and held that you could become divorced for unseemly or indecent matrimonial offences, while the school of Hillel believed that you could get divorced for any reason, no matter how trivial. If your spouse burnt the food, particularly on Mother's Day. If they became less attractive to you, or if you simply found someone else more attractive, that it was, they were all valid reasons for divorce. So they asked Jesus in the midst of their debate, where does he stand on what is an acceptable reason for divorce? Well, Jesus responds, Have you not read that the one who made them at the beginning made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. How sad it is when that marriage union is taken lightly. To see the concession of divorce, the reasons for it, and the giving of divorce papers as just one of those band-aids that we spoke about. So long as the concession process is followed, they are unharmed in the process. God will be appeased. There's no harm, no foul, no damage done to either party. No sadness. 
no loss. But a covenant of marriage instigated a creation where God has joined two people together to reflect his son and his bride cannot be so easily broken. I say to you, Jesus says, that whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a woman who divorces commits adultery. It seems that despite the concession to divorce, something of that weighty union that God has created in marriage remains between the separated spouses. Enough of that covenant remains that should a divorcee remarry, Jesus calls it adultery. The marriage union is a one-way process intended to last until death. That's how it's been designed, not to go in reverse. This is what the Pharisees didn't understand, believing that divorce would instead simply restore them back to their pre-marriage status, back to being single. But it doesn't appear to do that. Instead, it leaves you at an in-between state, neither single nor married. This is not an easy word to receive because it means a life of celibacy after divorce. It is especially a difficult word for those that took their marriage seriously and something went wrong and they felt the impact of sin in our lives. They were even possibly thrust into divorce against their heart's desires and now face a life potentially of celibacy because of that. This is a sad reality and something to lament because it is not God's ideal. Even Jesus acknowledges the difficulty of this word. Back in Matthew 19, he says, not everyone can accept this teaching. It's not only for the, uh, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth. There are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others. And there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom. Let anyone accept this who can. But while there is sadness and there is pain here, the word isn't hopeless. Even such difficult situations, even in these places, Jesus shepherds us into a union that is greater than that of even marriage between a husband and a wife. It's a union with him. Where you are loved, holy, healed, holy, where you share in his life, a life of righteousness, not until death, but for all of eternity. And there's healing in his arms, healing that cannot be gained in any other way. 
And it's a blessing to know that even as someone that has gone through, even for someone who has gone through divorce, you can still live a life that is full of the righteousness of Christ. That is still salt and light to the world and filled with purpose, living and lived for the kingdom of God and for his glory. Now, as the disciples have been taught a light and flippant approach to marriage, so they have received the same word in regards to oaths. Again, you have heard it said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform your oaths to the Lord. Now, the act of an oath is not just to give your word or to make a promise, but to use someone else's name, someone else's authority to make you more trustworthy. When I was a child, my sister and I used to say, I promise to one another all the time to convince one another to get on board with whatever scheme we had. And after we had broken enough I promises, we turned up the authority the pinky promise. (laughs) And after a short time, when the ground was littered with broken pinky promises, we turned up the authority again. And you might be wondering what could possibly come after a pinky promise. It was the God promise. Yeah, that's the correct reaction, Ali. Uh, My dad's reaction was a little harsher when he found out that that's what I was doing. And I didn't do it anymore. It's a blessing to know. Uh, it's a blessing to have a father that guides, <laughs> that guides his children. It's funny to hear a story of children making oaths to one another and then read of the Pharisees doing the exact same thing. Of broken promises included. You see, the Pharisees were masters of their own law, their own version of it. They debated, they hypothesized the law until they knew the form of it, the formula of oath-taking so well that they could find loopholes to make and use it to their own advantage. As we saw regarding divorce, there were whole schools of thought around how oaths were to be used, particularly around what ones could be broken and what ones should be kept Oaths to the Lord, as we saw in our own verse, are ones that must be kept. But oaths to other people? Not so much. Again, we see here an approach from a culture to something that the Lord finds important, that they approach as very unimportant. To find a way around it, to make it less Rather than being hungry to live a righteous life for the sake of the kingdom, they sought to achieve the bare minimum. It's the P's for degrees of life. So that they could live a life that was according to themselves rather than the kingdom. They sought to minimise the damage that they saw of broken promises to make it small. And in doing so, applied those band-aid solutions 
the injury isn't so bad if we can break all these oaths and I can justify it. Now, Jesus responds to this type of thinking by saying, don't swear at all. Neither by heaven or earth or Jerusalem or by your own head. Because all of it is the Lord's. To swear by anything is to swear upon him. So just let your yes be yes and your no be no. Any more than this is from the evil one. Stop right. That swearing or oath taking is really a pathetic confession of our own dishonesty. It is used because we are either untrustworthy people or lazy because we can't be bothered earning trust. And certainly not respect as a people known as truthful or faithful people. But as our Lord is the Lord of the word and truth in all that he does, his Lord demands faithfulness and truth to the same measure. Irrelevant of oaths or promises, simply a yes or a no binds us. No schemers. We are not to be schemers looking for a way to break our word. Yet, we also know that this is a very high bar to set for broken people. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. How could we ever speak again? For fear of breaking our word, even by accident, let alone doing it on purpose. We can't. But once again, that is why Jesus is holding up this law, isn't it? For us to see its wholeness here, so that we would know our inability to live apart from unity with him. To see and to know his faithfulness as the word of God. For us, just as it was with marriage. So that we might delight and rejoice in the union that we have in him. As someone that keeps his word, fulfilled the law of the Lord for us. Giving all glory to him in our lives. In closing this morning, I hope you have felt something of the pain of this word, but also the shepherding of Jesus into his Heart, his life and righteousness. That he has pulled off some of those useless band-aids of a light view of the marriage union or of our own word and ushered you into a knowledge of a life that can be lived in him who has fulfilled the law and all righteousness on our behalf and turned us into salt and light in the world because of what he has done.
all praise and glory to Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, once again we give thanks for your word. To be able to hear and know more of what it means to be a people, yes, that are broken and bloodied and, Lord, dismembered, but at the same time, Lord, in you, alive, whole. Lord, we pray thanks that you are the one that shepherds us through your word. That even in the pain, Lord, to know your hand upon us, your love for us. Lord, that this isn't a word really with the intent to judge, but a word intent to heal. To bring us to you. That we might have a life that is far more than the world could ever offer. Far more than any of these band-aid solutions could offer. Something that is permanent and significant. But Lord, we also know that it's, it's not just in these few laws that are brought up that we have union in you and can rejoice in you. There is so much more. Other band-aids that we continue to hold to. Lord, possibly even continue to put on or return to. And I give thanks, Lord, that you are a patient shepherd. That you sit with us and you guide us gently. Lord, that you tread with us, slowly bringing us into a place where we rejoice in your oneness. I pray this morning, Lord, for those that have felt a weight from this word that you would be with them. Comforting and guiding and continuing to share the wonder of a life in you for the rest of this life, but also for the eternity that is to come. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.